90% of cosmetic claims are exaggerated. So I guess like the biggest tip is just don't believe everything you read, especially if it comes from a beauty brand. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations minus the hyperbole. Hey friends, great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. In today's episode, we hear from Michelle Wong, PhD. Michelle is a science educator and a cosmetic chemist with a PhD in chemistry. She's behind Lab Muffin Beauty Science, where she explains the science behind beauty products for a general audience. I recently came across her work and was interested in sitting down with her to discuss all things cosmetics, sunscreen, skincare, hair care, and deodorants. Today is part one of what will be an ongoing exploration into cosmetics with Michelle, the focus of this conversation being on sunscreens. Are natural mineral-based sunscreens more effective and safer than traditional sunscreens? Is higher SPF better? Should we be worried about chemical ingredients like benzenes? How are ingredients tested for safety? How much sunscreen should we apply and how regularly can children and adults use the same sunscreen? We cover all of this and more. As always, all references are included in the show notes. And if you want to watch this, you can do so on YouTube where full-length videos of each episode of The Proof can be found. Please do enjoy. This is me and Michelle Wong, PhD. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus 
contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the show. Hey, Simon. Thanks for having me on. Yes, I've been looking forward to this one. I, I've, I've followed your work on both Instagram and, and Twitter for a while and love everything that you're doing. Uh, super interested in all of the information that you share and I guess this is a, a bit of new territory for the show. Uh, same theme, still science-based, but of course, we're venturing into the world of beauty products. So really looking forward to doing that with you. I know that you you have a PhD in chemistry, right? Yeah. How would you sort of summarize your area of expertise and, and what you enjoy spending most of your time on today? So my PhD was on um, medicinal and supramolecular chemistry. So I was specifically studying how to make cyclic peptides for various drug applications as well as as um, sensors. And yeah, so from that, I guess my background has been a lot of um, pharmaceutical chemistry. So looking at how to make drugs and how the drugs work. Obviously, you need to know which drugs to make. So you need to know um, which targets are worth chasing after. And also how um, the supramolecular chemistry side, which is a bit less well known, I guess. So supramolecular chemistry is how different chemicals interact with each other in a non-reaction way. So this has been quite relevant actually to my current work, which is mostly in science communication. So I mostly explain to people how beauty products work in a uh, um, more everyday understandable way. Um, and yeah, so the reason I got into the beauty industry and talking about beauty as my topic is because when I was doing my PhD, I personally had some acne and I was wondering which products to buy. And once you start looking into beauty marketing, I'm sure you've experienced it too. You see, there is so much BS um, and there's so many vague words. Um, things like, you know, it will beautify your skin, it will purify your skin. And as a chemist, I was like, what are we purifying here? What do you mean by beautify? What do you mean by illuminate? Like what is going on at a molecular level? And that's sort of how I started digging into it for myself. And then I just found so much confusing information and it didn't really make sense. So I just dug deeper and deeper. And then I was like, well, if I, as a PhD student who understands chemistry is getting so confused, surely everyone else is as well. So I may as well start a blog and write down what I found out. And, you know, at least maybe my 15 hours of searching will be useful for someone else as well and not just me. And yeah, that's kind of how it started. And so now I talk about all sorts of topics around beauty products and the science behind them and the sort of marketing BS and marketing myths that come about. Um, a lot of the time it is about sunscreen, like you mentioned. Right. When just to kind of, I guess, define some of our terms, um, cosmetics 
is that really an, an umbrella term for everything from sunscreen to skincare to hair care, deodorants, et cetera? Would they all fall underneath that sort of basket? That is a really good question. And it actually gets to the root of some of the massive confusions around cosmetics. So in general, there's like cosmetics and drugs. So things that you put on your skin, a lot of them are cosmetics. And that means they generally don't have much of a physiological effect. They're not meant to anyway, even though in reality, these definitions were set decades and decades ago when people assumed skin was just inert and anything you put on it wouldn't actually impact your body. And now we know it's different, but these definitions haven't really changed. So cosmetics generally are things that you put on your skin and have a temporary effect. They can clean your skin, they can beautify your skin. And then there are drugs and drugs are the ones that are meant to have some sort of therapeutic effect. Mm -hmm. So um, there are lots of in, there are lots of products that are cosmetics pretty much anywhere in the world. So a moisturizer, for example, any plain moisturizer is generally going to be a cosmetic. And then there are things that are always going to be drugs pretty much. So things like antifungal cream. Mm -hmm. But then there's a whole bunch of things that are cosmetics in some places and drugs in other places because the definitions aren't quite the same. So sunscreen is actually one of those. In Australia and the US, they are drugs or in Australia, we call them therapeutic products. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Europe, their cosmetics and in lots of other places as well. In a couple of countries in Asia, they're kind of borderline. So they're in functional cosmetics, which are like cosmetics, except they've acknowledged that some cosmetics have more things or do more things rather than a general cosmetic. So this is places like Japan and Korea. Right. And can sometimes it can it can it depend on the kind of the dosage? So for example, I think I've come across retinol before as an ingredient sort of on the shelf, but then I've also heard of prescription-based products that contain retinol. Would that be an example of something that could be both sort of a cosmetic, but also used within a drug formulation? That's an interesting one. So the prescription ones are generally tretinoin, or there's a few of other ones as well, but tretinoin is probably the main one. So that's prescription. Retinol is cosmetic. However, when you put retinol on your skin, the way it works is that it actually converts. So it goes from retinol to something called retinaldehyde, and then it turns into tretinoin. So it's like a pro-drug. Basically, yeah, you put it on your skin as a cosmetic and it turns into the prescription drug inside your skin. So it's a very, very gray area. Gotcha. Okay, we might come back to that when we jump into skincare. You mentioned before that the the skin, which is our largest sort of organ, is not inert. Um, how would you kind of go about describing, I guess, some of the important aspects of the sort of skin's physiology um, that would be important for us to, to understand and consider when we are evaluating some of these different cosmetic products and um, how they can affect the health of our skin? Yeah, so skin is... Um Skin is quite complex. So skin has a bunch of dead skin cells at the top. That's called the stratum corneum. It's about 10 to 20 layers. I've actually got a model here. Um, so your podcast listeners probably can't see, but your video ones can. Um, so the top layer is going to be a whole bunch of dead skin cells. And because of that, um, that's actually why people thought skin was inert for so long, because the top layers are dead. They can't do anything. How can stuff you put on affect the rest of your body? Um, 
But the thing is, it is meant to be there to act as a barrier, but it also does let some stuff in. And this barrier actually also responds to the environment. So, for example, if there's high humidity or lower humidity, then the skin will actually release substances to keep the hydration at a relatively um, stable level. So, yeah, this is all like how humans evolved, basically, like evolution has been has actually made a, a really elegant system. So we have these top dead skin cells and these um, come off about one layer a day. And the reason for that is because on your skin, you're going to have lots of um, random substances getting on your skin. You're going to have microbes and this slowing off is actually helping keep your skin relatively hygienic. Um, so it's like a defense mechanism. So to keep those cells um, coming off, you also have the epidermis underneath, which is producing one layer, approximately one layer. This changes depending on age, genetics, climate. Um, so it produces one extra layer approximately per day so that that top layer can come off and it keeps on renewing. And so the epidermis is mostly there to feed this dead barrier. Below that, you have the dermis, and the dermis is lower here, and that's where you start to get things like um, blood vessels and also fibroblasts. Um, fibroblasts are the things that are sort of um, producing substances in your skin to keep it having that firm structure. So the dermis is where you have things like collagen, which comes up a lot in skincare marketing, as well as elastin. Um, and that's where you have um, things like wrinkles happening. So as you get older, the dermis, the stuff in the dermis starts degrading and it gets thinner. And that's where you start getting sagging skin and you don't have that firm, plump, um, bouncy sort of young skin. So yeah, those are the different layers. And yeah, when you're thinking about skincare and how that affects your skin, um, a lot of it is to do with what are you putting on your skin? Can it penetrate the barrier? And then after it penetrates the barrier, how deep can it go? So can it actually get to where it's meant to work? And yeah, this is a topic of a lot of research in um, both cosmetics and in drugs. So a lot of um, medical research or pharmacological research is to do with delivery systems. And some of this is topical delivery. So yeah, just trying to get stuff through the barrier so it can do something. So the dermis is where you said wrinkles occur. Um, if a, a a brand is sort of making a claim that their product, the topical product, is beneficial for wrinkles, would there need to be some sort of study or, or science that's been conducted to determine that the formula or components of that formula are actually penetrating that barrier and getting to that dermis layer? You would think so. But um, one of the biggest issues is what we touched on before, which is that drug versus cosmetic thing. So cosmetics aren't meant to be able to impact your skin, including impacting the dermis, increasing collagen, that sort of thing. So if a company puts out a product and claims that it does, like it increases collagen, therefore it reduces wrinkles, then that is actually an illegal claim, unless it's a drug like prescription retinol, um, prescription tretinoin, for example. So companies are both, it's a very weird situation where cosmetic companies both want to say more about their product than it can do. Mm -hmm. So they want to exaggerate what their product can do, but at the same time, they also want to downplay what their product can do for legal reasons. And so, yeah, it's a very weird marketplace. Um, but in general, for cosmetics, the way that they try to substantiate it, 
as much as they can within the legal confines is by doing um, appearance-based um, studies. So it'll be things like they'll get 10 people to apply the product to their skin. And then um, after 30 days, there was 20% increase in appearance of um, smoothness or something like that. So it sounds very vague. And in reality, you would think, well, if you're increasing smoothness, then you must be doing something underneath the skin. Um, yeah. So they, they can say how it changes the appearance because that's like a superficial sort of change, but they can't really link that to what it's really doing under the surface. Mm -hmm. um, so it is actually really tricky to try to pick out products that will or are more likely to work. Right. So I guess what I'm interested in here, let's say, for example, um, we're both based in Australia. Let's say I walk into Mecca or even if I walk into Woolworths, a major grocery store, they have a bunch of different cosmetic sort of skincare products these days as well. Um what I'm trying to to understand, is it just that possibly the science hasn't been conducted and some of these products can penetrate the dermis and get down to, uh, sorry, penetrate the barrier and get down to the dermis and could be effective if we know what we're looking for? Or are you saying that across the board, most of these are not going to be living up to those claims? The, the compounds are not going to get to the right areas of the skin and that if we were looking for those benefits, we would need to be thinking more about prescription drug formulations? I would say it's the former. I would say most products on the marketplace will contain some ingredients that can penetrate the skin. And this is in the peer-reviewed literature. So um, there's been lots of studies where things have happened. Um, so think there are particular ingredients that can definitely work in cosmetic products. So these are things like retinol that you mentioned before, um, niacinamide, some forms of vitamin C. Um, there's a whole bunch, but those are probably the ones that come top of mind. Um, so cosmetics can definitely work. I guess the tricky thing is firstly, like even though there are these peer review studies and some of these are actually done by the cosmetics brands and they're saying, we have found that this has actually increased um, the number, the collagen production. Like we know exactly how this works. We know which receptor it hits. Um, but then on the product, they can't actually say any of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you see the product, it's all being diluted to appearance claims. Um, and so, yeah, if you have a product that has niacinamide in it, there is a good chance it will work. Um, but of course, that also depends on everything else happening in the product. So this is all that delivery system stuff. Um, so there are tons of things that can stop a product from working, even if it contains a molecule that has been shown to work. So this is things like um, if it's in a base that just doesn't help that ingredient penetrate the skin. If um, that ingredient is unstable and it hasn't been stabilized within the product. So retinol is one example where um, we have a molecule that has a really short shelf life. There's been a study that found that um, they looked at a whole bunch of cosmetic products and they tested how much retinol was actually in them. And in tons of them, they had degraded to almost nothing. So even though the product said 1%, there was like 0.1% by the time they tested it. Um, and there was massive variation from different cosmetic brands. And yeah, this is one of those downsides of cosmetics versus drugs. You don't really have that sort of guaranteed um, efficacy. Mm -hmm. So I think 
at the end of the day, it is probably more reliable to go for regulated drugs. So prescription products, even non-prescription products like um, benzoyl peroxide is an over-the-counter acne treatment. And yeah, that's a lot more regulated than mm-hmm. the other cosmetics. Um, but on the other hand, if you only stick to drugs, then you are kind of limiting yourself a lot to things that um, have only been shown to work. And at the end of the day, like if you think about what happens with research funding, there just isn't going to be that much going into cosmetics. Like it is just not high up on the list of government priorities. So you're not going to have that much publicly funded research um, that ends up in the peer-reviewed literature. If a cosmetics company researches a new ingredient, there is very little motivation for them to go and publish it in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, There's a lot of motivation for them to keep it secret and just only use it in their products and then their products get a cult following and they benefit from that without sharing it with their competitors. Um, So, yeah, if you do stick to drugs, then you will get more guaranteed results, but you might not have the full range of possibilities that you can get with dipping your toes into cosmetics as well. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure you have some great tips for those that want to dip their toes into cosmetics. Well, how can you kind of reduce your risk of buying a product that perhaps is um, is making claims that are unlike that product's unlikely to live up to, or um, perhaps that product's not as safe as others, things like that. So I'm looking forward to kind of trying to unpack a few of your tips there. But with regards to the prescription um, sort of cosmetic drugs, so the avenue to get those would be, I'm assuming you see a dermatologist and then a dermatologist writes a, a sort of prescription for a specific drug. Um, that's definitely um, the most common route. I, in Australia, you can also get GPs who can prescribe it. Um, and this is even regular GPs. It really depends on the GP and how familiar they are with it. So um, I personally have my treatment prescribed by a GP. There are cosmetic GPs who specialize in this sort of thing. So you can go to them and they'll be able to um, understand what we're asking for, um, maybe a bit better. There are also some telegerm services now where you um, sign up via website and then they have a derm and you have like a short appointment and then they compound a product specifically for you, which is a really neat service. For sure. Okay. So high level here, what, what kind of tips do you have? Let's say you're at dinner with a friend and they say, Michelle, I just want some sort of guiding principles to help me when I'm on Instagram or um, reading the latest magazine with beauty ads, or I'm walking through Westfield Shopping Center and see ads about cosmetics. Is there is there any tips that you have to sort of help people spot misinformation or exaggerated claims in this space? Um, honestly, I would say 90% of cosmetic claims are exaggerated. So I guess like the biggest tip is just don't believe everything you read, especially if it comes from a beauty brand. Um, there's just so much BS out there and these beauty brands and their marketing, a lot of that filters through to journalists, for example. Um, so a lot of beauty journalists, their main source of education is going to PR events put um, put by the brand where the brand has Um, experts, sometimes they are proper experts, um, sometimes they're not, and they just tell journalists about their product. And obviously all of that is directed towards selling their specific product. Um, 
a lot of um, dermatologists and estheticians, um, beauty therapists, their education is also from beauty brands as well. Um, so even with dermatologists, um, dermatologists don't really specialize in skincare. Some of them do, but very few of them um, are actually not that knowledgeable about skincare because at the end of the day, they are looking at medical problems and skincare most of the time with cosmetics, they don't really address that. Um, so a lot of dermatologists also get their education from those sort of Medispa type brands. And there is so much BS there as well. Um, so I guess the biggest tip is don't believe everything you read. Um, be super careful about where, what your sources are for information um, and try to follow like a range of experts and go for the consensus of relevant experts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I guess, like an overarching tip, but that's kind of, I guess, um, longer term, higher effort. I guess a low effort tip would be um, wear daily sunscreen. Um, that's probably like the one thing that everyone agrees on is the best thing you can do for your skin, um, especially in Australia where we have such high UV. UV is super damaging to skin. Apart from skin cancer, it also causes um, skin aging. So that's in terms of wrinkles, um, pigmentation, all this premature aging stuff. Like if you go to the beach and you see, you know, the wrinkled person who clearly never wears sunscreen, you can see the sorts of effects that UV has on skin. Mm-hmm. So wearing daily sunscreen is the best thing you can do. Um, preventing the damage in the first place with that sunscreen is much more effective than trying to undo it and much cheaper than trying to undo it in the future with lasers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess another tip would be um, look for brands that actually invest in research. Um, there are lots of brands that have very clear unscientific claims. So things like, um, you're free from chemicals, for example, um, as we know, like chemicals, everything is chemicals. Um, synthetic chemicals aren't more dangerous than, um, natural chemicals. So if you see stuff like that, I would probably give that a wide berth. Um, I think those are probably my biggest tips. <laughs> oh, those are good. And and I want to unpack a few of those things. I have a bunch of questions on sunscreen and on um, natural versus synthetic. And I've read a lot of your work in that space. And I think you do a great job clarifying things. Um, you said there that everyone agrees on sunscreen. Um, I've seen this recent trend. Uh, it seems to be uh, our carnivore friends who who have adopted this message that somehow um, sunscreen actually we should fear it and that um, we don't need sunscreen if we're otherwise healthy and, and eating the right foods. Um, I'm sure, have you come across anyone online that's that's told you that sunscreen's a big myth? This has been a thing since I think like when I started looking into skincare. So that would have been like 2011. So it's been around for a long time and it's just like kind of evolved and bounced from group to group. So yeah, I'm not really surprised because um, I'm not super familiar with the carnival kind of um, philosophy, but I think it's partly to do with like ancestral. Yeah, right. It's like going back to nature and the natural is best. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not really surprised that they've seized upon this whole um, sunscreen is bad thing. Um, So I guess um, a lot of the time, the argument for sunscreen being bad is that cancer rates have increased since sunscreen was introduced. Um, The biggest reason for this, as with um, a lot of skin, uh, 
with as with a lot of cancer diagnosis is that detection has gotten a lot better um, at the same time as um, we've progressed. And there's actually a bit of overdiagnosis at the moment. So there's a dermatologist in the US called um, Dr. Ada Adamson, and he has done a lot of research on um, melanoma detection and whether or not that is actually helping. And he's actually found that a lot of the melanoma diagnoses, there's like a correlation between um, the socioeconomic um, class of a particular area and the amount of melanoma diagnosis, which makes no sense because um, it doesn't match with um, UV. It doesn't match with temperature across the US. It actually most closely matches with how much, how rich a particular area is. Um, and in the US, medicine is a lot about um, how much money you have, whether or not you can actually afford to go to the dermatologist and get skin checks. So um, that makes a lot of sense in terms of overdiagnosis. Um, he's also done a lot of work on um, darker skin and skin cancer. And again, there is this big trend where people with lighter skin benefit a lot more from sunscreen than people with darker skin when it comes to skin cancer. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of issues with overdiagnosis and that's one of the big reasons why there's a sort of myth um, again, it all just comes back down to correlationism causation. Can I ask a question on that? So when you say overdiagnosis, as in people are being diagnosed with melanoma who don't mm -hmm. have it or folks of lower socioeconomic status who don't have access to screening, we're just not detecting that they have melanoma. Um, it comes down to treatment, really. Um, so there's a lot of different um, cancers where they're benign and you don't actually have to cut them out. Um, and so intervention is actually um, worse than not intervening. And yeah, I don't know if it was just melanoma. I think it might've been skin cancer in general. And so they were finding all this skin cancer and cutting it out, um, but it wasn't actually impacting um, the prognosis of the patients. So yeah, so it's overdiagnosis, overtreatment in places where yeah, you wouldn't necessarily need to treat. Um, so at the same time as cancer is increasing, cancer survival rates are also, de um, are also increasing. So I think that's a good um, indication that sunscreen is not causing cancer and that having more sun awareness is not a bad thing. Do we have direct evidence that sunscreens reduce the risk of melanoma or skin cancer in general? That's a good question. And that is actually one of the biggest issues with sunscreen. Um, so we do have one big study that was done in Queensland. This is called the NAMBA study. And this is the main direct evidence we have for the benefits of um, sunscreen against uh, in protecting against skin cancer. Um, and the biggest impacts were actually found for the more benign cancers, I guess, like the less scary ones. So melanoma is probably the scariest one, but there's also like um, squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma. Those were increased, uh, those were decreased massively by um, daily sunscreen use. Mm -hmm. Melanoma was decreased as well, but the effect was not as big um, and not as convincing. And yeah, there's a lot of theories about why that is, but um, there's been a few other studies as well on um on sunscreen decrease in cancer, uh, but none of them have been quite as robust as this Queensland study. Right. And you mentioned before um, sun exposure and kind of the damage it does to the, the skin. Um, so other than thinking about, I guess, the risk of skin cancer, is there direct evidence that the application of sunscreen 
and the effect that that has on sort of the penetration of UV um, rays, how that affects the, the actual aging and appearance of skin over time. Yes, we actually have a lot more evidence on that um, because it happens a lot faster than cancer. Um, so we have evidence that um, actually in that Queensland study, they found that people who applied an SPF 15, so this Queensland study, they used SPF 15. Um, and maybe this is also why they didn't find such a big effect with melanoma because SPF 15, like now we look at it and laugh. Um, but obviously that study was started a long time ago, which is why we actually have results. Um, so they found that wearing an SPF, I think it was actually SPF 16 sunscreen daily reduced um, aging. And the people who wore it, their aging basically stopped for the duration of the study um, in terms of wrinkle, um, yeah, amount of wrinkles. So yeah, we've got good evidence for that. We've also got good evidence that um, sunscreen reduces pigmentation. So when white skin ages, that tends to um, form wrinkles. But when pigmented skin ages, we tend to get more um, uneven pigmentation rather than wrinkles. Pigment is itself a bit protective against UV. Um, although getting a tan, I'm, I feel like this is probably a question you've got for me a bit later. Um, getting a tan won't really protect you against UV. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're born with darker skin, mm -hmm. in general, that is protective. But at the same time, it means your skin has a greater um ability to just pump out pigment. And yeah, that's what our skin does. My dad is basically one giant freckle. So genetically, that is how I'm going to age. And yeah, um, we have good evidence that wearing sunscreen, reducing UV will reduce pigmentation too. And so how important is the sort of SPF? If we go out and we choose a, a face or a body a sunscreen, you mentioned 15 or 16 SPF there. Um, I've always been using a, an SPF 50 on my face. Um, I know that there's products that are 100 SPF. What's the difference between this number? What does it actually mean? And based on the evidence that we have, are we better off just choosing the, the highest number? Um, the short answer is um, yes, we are better off just choosing the highest number that you can afford and that you can apply a lot of. So what the number means is basically if you apply the sunscreen perfectly under lab conditions, how, um, how much is the UV reduced? So for example, an, um, an SPF 15 applied perfectly will reduce the, um, the skin reddening UV that goes through the sunscreen to hit your skin to 1 15th. Um, so for SPF 50, that would be reduced to um, 1 50th or 2%. Um, the problem is this is Firstly, when it's applied perfectly and no one applies it perfectly. When they do the SPF test in the lab, they actually squeeze out the sunscreen in tiny dots on the skin and then they get like a gloved finger and rub it in a very specific way. And they have to do this to get reproducible findings with um, SPF testing. In reality, we are not doing that. We're just slopping it on. So the higher you go, the more likely it is that a thinner layer will still give you a decent amount of protection. So if you're applying SPF 50 plus, when you actually apply it, you're probably getting a fair bit less than that, especially if you're not being careful about measuring out how much sunscreen you're applying. Um, Back in the day, there used to be this big thing about how like higher SPFs are more expensive um, and higher SPFs have worse texture, which kind of makes sense because like if you're cramming more sunscreen chemicals into a sunscreen, then you're getting a higher SPF, but you're also 
running out of space for everything else in the product that makes it feel nice. Um, but these days we have a lot better technology in terms of um, sunscreen filters that work really well while feeling nice, um, things that we can add to sunscreens that make them feel a lot lighter. And so, yeah, it is possible to get SPF 50 plus sunscreens now that just feel like moisturizer. And so, mm -hmm. um, especially in Australia where sunscreen is relatively inexpensive, it is a good idea to just get the highest SPF you can. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned chemicals there. And so firstly, it's the chemical ingredients that are kind of acting as the shield and sort of filtering out some of that that skin reddening UV uh, light. Is that right? Um, yeah. So biochemicals, I pretty much just mean ingredients. So yeah, everything. Yeah, I was, yeah, just um, chemist. Right. But I'm sure that that's a, that's a word that often comes up when people are thinking about sunscreens, right? And, yes. and I know... Um, you know, you hear conversations about ingredients like benzenes mm. um, that I think can be found in sunscreens, if, I, if I'm correct. And and you'll hear people saying, you know, these are associated with leukemia or different types of blood cancers. And usually that kind of, I guess, thought or rhetoric is then followed up with, you know, promotion of some type of more natural sunscreen. So I'm interested in, in what your thoughts are on various compounds that maybe you've heard people suggest are not safe that are in sunscreen and what you'd like people to kind of understand about these. Yeah. So um, sunscreen ingredients, the active ones are divided into two categories, um, organic and inorganic. A lot of the time it's called chemical versus physical. Um, so the chemical sunscreens like quotation marks, chemical sunscreens, um, they tend to have longer names. They tend to have slightly scary names that they're just like kind of stranger danger type names. The physical sunscreens, the main ones are zinc oxide and titanium dioxide, which sound a lot more um, friendly. Mm -hmm. So, um, so a lot of the time it is the chemical sunscreens with the scary names that get a lot of the flack. Um, there are so many myths around this whole topic. I could probably talk for an hour, but I think that would probably be a bit too much. Um, but yeah, um, I guess the bottom line is um, zinc oxide, firstly, it is not natural. Um, the natural stuff that gets mined, it's often contaminated with heavy metals. So almost all of the zinc oxide used in sunscreens are it's all actually synthetic. It's all lab manufactured because the synthetic version is safer than the natural version that you would dig out of the ground. So yeah, first off, it is not natural. Um, secondly, it is it doesn't work better. So there's a lot of myths around how zinc oxide blocks the whole range of UV, how it um, it can also block against visible light, all of this stuff. Um, this is all, again, just myths. Um, how much protection a sunscreen gives you is based around the SPF and the broad spectrum rating. And if you have more of these chemical sunscreens, you can actually get a higher SPF than you can with zinc oxide. Zinc oxide is actually really not a very efficient filter. Like 1% zinc oxide blocks out less UV than 1% of pretty much any other sunscreen ingredient. So yeah, it's got really low efficacy and also it's really gritty. Um, zinc oxide is solid, which means that if you put 20% zinc oxide into a sunscreen, you're basically rubbing on like 
a product that is one-fifth powdered rock. Um, and that just doesn't feel very nice for most people. Some people like it. So if you like it, that's great. Um, keep using it. But if you don't like that, then you are probably better off using a chemical sunscreen that you can apply more of. Mm-hmm. With sunscreen, the more you apply, the more protection you get. And in general, you're meant to aim for one teaspoon for your face and neck um, and a shot glass for your whole body. A lot of the time with zinc oxide sunscreens, because they feel so gritty, so thick, people apply a lot less. And if you apply, let's say, half, you're going to get half the SPF approximately, mm-hmm. which means, um, and also that half half amount that you're applying, you're probably not applying it completely evenly. So there's probably patches of your face where you're getting a lot less than half the SPF. Um, so yeah, zinc oxide firstly doesn't protect better. Now in terms of safety, this is a really, really big topic. Um, and there's a lot of developments happening within this area a lot of the time. Um, I guess first off, um, there are a lot of different chemical sunscreen filters. In the EU and in Australia, there's probably about 20 that are commonly used. And these 20, they were all developed at different times. The earliest ones were developed around the 1970s. The newest ones were developed in the 2010s. And so we actually, there's been a couple that have been released in the last year, and they were obviously developed um, very recently. I don't think they've been approved in Australia right now, but they probably will be soon. So we have this massive range of 20 different filters that all have different ways of interacting with your skin. They all have different effectiveness in blocking UV. They have different um, ability to penetrate through skin. They have different stability. And so it's really, you you just can't generalize all 20 of these um, in terms of safety. The newer ones are purposely designed to be relatively safer. The older ones aren't necessarily unsafe either, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, But yeah, you can't generalize all of these with safe versus unsafe. Um, With the specific ingredients that tend to get um, a lot of press about their dangers, um, I think the biggest one in terms of actual sunscreen ingredients is oxybenzone. Um, or benzophenone 3, which is how it's labelled in Australia. This is one of the oldest sunscreen ingredients that's still in common use. And um, there's been a lot of bad press about it in terms of it causing endocrine disruption, um, causing allergies, also killing coral reefs, um, and also the benzene thing. I think because the ending of the name sounds a bit like benzene, um, a lot of people have gotten that confused as well. So just to quickly clarify, when you say zinc oxide, uh, this is uh, this is kind of referring, I guess, to another another kind of word that gets used to describe these products is mineral sunscreens. That'd be yes. right. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, let's let's go into. If, if we're thinking about a sort of quote-unquote chemical sunscreens or traditional sunscreens um, and someone's going to, to choose one, are there any kind of um, good tips that you have for looking at certain ingredients that they may want to see in there versus others that you kind of alluded to there that maybe these, are, these products have changed over time? Are there any ingredients at all that you would like to see not in those formulations? Um, I think personally, I 
just ignore the ingredients. Like I don't really pick particular ingredients. I do sometimes actually avoid zinc oxide and titanium dioxide because I know that they tend to be heavy and also because they tend to be quite white on the skin. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing I look out for personally. If I had a sunscreen allergy, then I might be looking out for some other ingredients. Um, a lot of people are allergic to um, octanoxate, um, octocrylene, um, avobenzone. I think those are probably the ones that most people are allergic to. So yeah, if you're allergic to a specific one, you want to obviously avoid that. If you're not, then I don't think there really is much to avoid. Um, if you are pregnant and paranoid, I think that's probably another place. Um, so in terms of the evidence for um, sunscreens impacting um, humans, the biggest the most evidence is probably like the, I guess the riskiest is probably um, if it impacts um, an unborn child, because obviously they're developing, they're a lot more sensitive. Um, the evidence so far doesn't really show that there is much of a measurable impact. But um, as a pretty paranoid person myself, um, I would imagine that if I was pregnant, I would be quite paranoid and that stress itself would be bad enough for me. So if you are sort of like me and you want to avoid things just in case, even if just for peace of mind, um, I would probably recommend avoiding oxybenzone because it is the one that gets the most press. Um, and also it's really easy to avoid oxybenzone because, um, especially in Australia, it's a bit harder in the US um, because we have so many other options. Again, there's like 19 other commonly used sunscreen ingredients that can take the place of oxybenzone. Um, and also um, for MBC, this is like the one sunscreen ingredient so far that's been flagged as unknown, um, possibly an endocrine disruptor in the EU. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those would be my two. Right. And so by endocrine disruptor, um, we're talking about the potential capacity to affect hormones in the body. Exactly. Okay. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. 
I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. You mentioned reef um, safe or damaging the reef and there are all sorts of reef safe claims out there. And certainly I know myself, um, I surf, I'm in the ocean all the time. And so this is you know, the type of, I guess, marketing that I consume and, and I look at products when they talk about being reef safe because that's something that I value. Um, but I've seen claims on all sides. I see some people saying that uh, mineral sunscreens are better for the environment than chemical sunscreens with benzenes and then um, you know, other others saying that um, well, actually, you know, mineral sunscreens can be just as bad, if not worse, for the environment. So, how do we? Is this something that you've looked at? It sounds like it is, and and how do we kind of reconcile that so that if we are um, shopping and and we want to consider the environment in our purchase when we are buying sunscreen, um, which way should we be going? Um, so yeah, I've definitely looked at it a lot. And um, at the moment, all the research is pretty much in, in its infancy. There's tons of impacts that haven't been fleshed out properly yet. But from what we have so far in terms of the research, um, there's no blanket statement, like there's no sunscreens that are like, obviously much, much more toxic than other sunscreens. Um, lots of them have different impacts in different parts of the environment. Some of them will impact coral or can potentially impact coral. Some of them will impact um, bacteria. Like there's tons and tons of different types of impacts. So it's really difficult to blanketly say one sunscreen is better than another. Um, in terms of the reef thing, um, so there was a big um a whole bunch of media stories about sunscreens hurting coral, bleaching coral reefs in around 2016. And this came from the publication of a study where they put the sunscreen in, um, in with the coral at very high concentrations and measured um, at which concentration the bleaching started happening. And then they also went around Hawaii and measured um, the amount of sunscreen in a bunch of different places. Um, and they found that in a couple of places, the sunscreen the sunscreen level in the ocean was high enough to cause bleaching. Um, so since then, there's been a lot of um, different studies and attempts to replicate it. And um, so far, it looks like these measurements are massive outliers. So the concentrations they measured were far, far above the concentrations anyone else has ever measured, except for maybe one other study. Um, so the National Academy of Sciences in the US actually released a report um, 
about a month ago, which went through all of the evidence on um, sunscreen environmental impacts. And it's a, I think, 400-page report. Um, I'm guessing most people probably don't want to read it, but um, if you do, it does have a lot of interesting um, charts about the different sunscreen impacts. Um, but basically, their conclusion is it's really unregulated. Most of the claims about things being more reef safe, um, more environmentally friendly, uh, have no real evidence base. Um, it doesn't look like sunscreens will impact coral, except in very outlier situations. Um, so if you're surfing in the ocean, if you're just going into the ocean, it is probably fine to wear whatever sunscreen. It probably won't make a big difference. If you are literally on top of the coral, like you're literally touching the coral, then there is a slightly higher risk. But at the same time, the measurements so far don't really seem to show that it makes much of a difference. So all those bans on sunscreens, um, they specifically say like the bans do not seem to be evidence-based. Um, in terms of, um, yeah, so in terms of zinc oxide, I think a lot of people assume that because zinc oxide is um, nature identical, it's already found in nature, it is safer. Um, but that is actually not the case in terms of environmental impact. Zinc itself is actually a toxin for a lot of species, including coral. Um, zinc is a heavy metal. And yeah, so when the zinc oxide goes into the environment, the zinc dissolves and you have um, zinc ions that can go into organisms and cause harm. So zinc oxide is definitely not benign, um, even though it's sort of a lot of people assume it is. Um, chemical sunscreens, on the other hand, a lot of them are not very soluble in water, um, so they don't tend to... Um, distribute as well as zinc might, they also tend to break down in UV as well. And so there's actually a few theoretical benefits to chemical sunscreens versus zinc oxide. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, the impacts aren't just, yeah, there's not enough evidence to really say for sure which sunscreens are better. There are some movements in Europe, especially, um, to try to move towards some sort of eco-labeling to make it a lot easier for consumers to like rate different sunscreens. Um, with those rating systems, at the moment, it actually seems like the worst sunscreen ingredients for the environment are actually zinc oxide um, and octocrylene. Mm -hmm. So I guess if you are going swimming and you are more environmentally conscious, it might be good to steer away from them, but I don't think like you should feel guilty if you don't. So where's that that messaging come from? That the mineral sunscreens are better for for reef. If that if if that's sort of not supported by the best evidence and it's not very clear in the evidence, how sort of where has that emerged from? I think people listening would be interested in kind of understanding a bit of the, the backstory there. Yeah. So the original 2016 study, um, the scientists who were involved with that. Um, they only, first off, they only looked at chemical sunscreens. Um, they didn't look at the impact of mineral sunscreens. Other, other groups have done that um, in other papers. Um, so those scientists, um, the main scientist, Dr. Craig Downs, um, he does seem to have like a bit of a vendetta against chemical sunscreens. Um, so he and he, he has a collaborator now called um, Joe Donato, um, and they've published a bunch of papers. Some of them, so Joe Donato is a retired toxicologist. Um, his chemical, his email address, which is actually on a few of these studies, is um, chemicalsaretoxic at gmail.com. 
Um, so you can sort of start seeing some of these things. Um, so Craig Downs is a, um, he, he's mostly studied marine biology. Um, he and Joe Donato published a paper on, um, on oxybenzone causing Hirschsprung's disease in babies, like in human babies. Um, and yeah, if you know anything about scientific research, marine biologists don't tend to suddenly jump into like human research. That's just like very different fields. Um, and generally researchers don't put their Gmail addresses on peer reviewed papers. Um, so yeah, there's a whole bunch of red flags. Um, um, a, I guess the conflict of interest is they actually um, cited me in one of their studies. Um, me as in like my, my blog, um, labmuffin.com as a reference. Um, and they called me a propaganda source. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they, in the same study, they go on about like smoking and how it's just like sunscreen. Um, they also say that, um, dermatologists should not be believed when they say sunscreen is necessary. Um, it's a very interesting paper. <laughs> um, there's some interesting comments about it on pub Peer as well. Um, but yeah, there does seem to be, oh yeah, and also um, the main, the marine biologist, he also has a um, reef safe certification scheme where you can pay his group to um, test your sunscreen against coral and then you can get a stamp for a fee um, saying that your sunscreen is reef safe. Um, again, this doesn't match up with, um, like, it's not regulated. Mm -hmm. Um and yeah, the National Academy's report does criticize this sort of scheme. So um, yeah, I think there are a lot of kind of similar um, vested interests in terms of um, people who are promoting um, zinc sunscreen over other sunscreens. You, you mentioned toxicology there, mm. and I want to I want to get you to kind of steel man your position here, and because we spoke there about sort of. Uh, endocrine disruptors. And um, what we didn't really touch on was sort of who who says, you know, who's regulating this entire industry and says that these ingredients are safe to use in these formulas. And, you know, how is that determined? How, how do we, because it, it would seem to me very difficult to look at an individual ingredient and see how that's going to affect human physiology in the long term over 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And that's what maybe people listening are, are thinking. So what are the kind of levels of science that are done to give us some degree of um, security, I guess, um, or confidence in these ingredients being safe for topical application over the long term in the dosage that they're being used in in the various products? That's a good question. Um, so in the US and Australia, because sunscreen is regulated as a drug, um, it's regulated by the FDA and the TGA. Um, so the FDA process is to do with um, submitting a whole bunch of studies. And um, one of the things that they did used to assume is that if an ingredient has been found to get into the blood at less than 0.5 nanograms per mil, then it's assumed that it doesn't do anything because it's too, at too low a concentration to do much. Um, so this is this all comes back to, um, I guess, just basic chemistry. Um, if you have a bunch of um, biological targets in your body, which when they hit 
They might cause long-term health effects. If you just don't have enough stuff hitting those targets, if you have too dilute a concentration, it's basically like homeopathy. Um, just statistically speaking, you can't hit one receptor and have some long-term health outcome. It's just not likely. Um, so that has changed uh, because the FDA suddenly realized that sunscreens can penetrate to a higher amount. Um, so this, this is a bit weird because um, there's actually been evidence for this for a long time um, since like the 1990s, but the FDA has kind of ignored it until recently when they did their own studies. Um, this was published, I believe, in 2020, um, where they found sunscreens in the blood. And yeah, there were tons and tons of news headlines about sunscreens going all the way to your blood, even though, yeah, we've known this since 1997, um, at least. So, um, so yeah, that's the FDA situation. At the moment, they are re-examining all of their um, sunscreen ingredients um, to try to work out what's going on. With chemical versus um, mineral sunscreens, chemical sunscreens can penetrate through the skin barrier a lot more easily than mineral sunscreens. Mineral sunscreens are, um, are inorganic compounds. They're in big insoluble particles that don't go through skin easily. Um, nanoparticles potentially can, but they they're still much too big to get very deep into the skin. So that's not really a big concern unless you are rubbing it on like a large area of broken skin. So yeah, mineral sunscreens, um, just by their chemical nature, seem to be safer in this regard. Now with the chemical sunscreens, again, there are so many different sunscreens. And one of the reasons why um, the newer sunscreens tend to be safer is that they're designed to be safer. So whether or not a molecule goes through your skin depends on its chemical properties, like how it interacts with those dead skin layers. And one of the biggest things is molecular size. The bigger a molecule, the harder it is to get through the skin, um, the less it diffuses, the less efficiently it diffuses. So pretty much all of the newer sunscreens are very heavy. They have a molecular weight of over 500. Um, some of them are in the thousands. Um, in general, if the molecular weight of a molecule is over 500, it has a really difficult time getting through the skin. Even if it's below 500, um, if it has other properties, for example, if it has a lot of um, polar centers, so if it's like relatively more water soluble, it tends to have a harder time as well. Um, and so, yeah, the newer sunscreens are purposely designed that they can't get through the skin. So what they do in the body is just much less of an issue. It's just much less likely they will do anything. Just in terms of of trying to decipher between the products that are available and and um, the size of the particles, I'm assuming that brands aren't writing that on the product. But would the sort of degree to which that rubs in um, to your skin be a sort of giveaway as to the particle size? So would something that is more difficult to rub in? Would that be suggestive of something that's a, that contains larger particle sizes and is less likely to be absorbed into the blood? Or how would you go about knowing, um, knowing this information as a consumer? So unfortunately, there is no way to find out except by Googling every active ingredient, <laughs> um, which is really unfortunate. Um, but yeah, you can just get your sunscreen, Google each of the ingredients and see what they are um, and whether they're newer or older. Um, Sometimes on some sunscreens, they mention um, particular words. So Tinosorb um, S, Tinosorb M, Meroxyl, sorry, Mexoral, um, Uvinyl A+. Um, those are some of the newer sunscreen ingredients, but 
they're not always on the marketing and they have very long names, especially in Australia. So yeah, there is no easy way, unfortunately. Would would the sort of degree to which it absorbs into your skin be a giveaway or is, is that probably not reflective? Um, it's not really reflective because um, there are ways to make sunscreens feel really nice on skin. Um, I actually used one this morning, which literally feels like water. And this has the newest sunscreen filter from L'Oreal in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it is one of the lightest sunscreens I've tried. So yeah, definitely not a good reflection. Okay. All right. I interrupted your train of thought there. Yeah. So in the US, they are reevaluating all of their sunscreens at the moment. Everything is considered um, like they've asked sunscreen manufacturers to submit very specific safety data. So that's actually a good thing, I think, for me as a scientist, because now I'm going to get to see a whole bunch more safety data, um, which is nice. But um, yeah, so if we go away from the US and go to the EU where we have these 20 different filters. um, So the EU has always taken more of a... um, I guess the more practical approach to assessing the evidence, they will take in any evidence and just assess it and just look at the whole body of evidence. Um, Whereas the US seems to have a whole bunch of rules about what evidence they need. Um, Yeah, so the EU has been looking at all of the evidence. Um, Every time there's some sort of concerning new piece of evidence, they will, the European Commission will get the um, Scientific Committee for Consumer Safety to reevaluate that ingredient and give recommendations for what they might do with that ingredient. And this is what all the sunscreen filters do. Um, the process that all the sunscreen filters go through in the EU, um, even though their cosmetics sunscreen ingredients are in a special category that gets scrutinized a lot more. Um, so the nice thing about the EU process is that these safety reports, which are about 30 pages, they get published online um, and they're in a very nice um a nice standardized format. So it makes it really easy to navigate and you can see exactly their logic in how they got to their percentage. Um, So the way this process works is, um, yeah, back to basic toxicology. How risky something is depends on hazard and exposure um, or mostly depends on hazard and exposure. So hazard is how intrinsically risky or how intrinsically harmful something is. Um, Whereas exposure is like how much you're exposed to it. So the example that um, I've seen a lot of people using that I quite like is that of a lion. So if you have a lion, a lion is very hazardous. Like it's a lot more potentially harmful than like a rabbit, for example. Um, But how much you're exposed to the lion will change what your risk is. So if the lion is in a cage, then it's blocked from you. If you go to the zoo, your risk of getting harmed by this hazardous lion is extremely low. Um, But if your exposure is high, if you go into the cage, then suddenly your risk is a lot higher. You are probably going to get well, you're probably going to die. Um, so that exposure changes um, how your overall risk of harm. And this is what these reports try to capture. So they look at how hazardous a particular ingredient is, and then they work out what level ex- of exposure should be safe. Um, so in terms of the hazard, the way that they assess this is they go through all of the relevant studies. Most of the time for sunscreen ingredients, these are animal studies because 
the number of studies where they found any sort of hint of harm in humans is just incredibly low, which is a good thing because it means that these sunscreens are actually really safe. Um, there's no like documented long-term harms from them. There's not really many hints in human studies. And yeah, it's reassuring. Right. And just to be, just to be clear, like those human studies, um, without going into the specifics of individual studies, but are they doing like topical application of sunscreens and then looking at things like changes in, in hormones in the body or what are they actually sort of interested in measuring? Yeah, most of the time they're measuring um, biomarkers. So just really small things like um, they're measuring like amounts of sunscreens going into the blood, um, maybe getting processed by the kidneys and like whether any metabolites are coming out in urine. Um, yeah, some, there's sometimes like fluctuations in different hormones as well measured. And yeah, so far, like most of the studies are just extremely mixed. Like some of them will increase the hormone, decrease the hormone, have no change. And there's no real trend, mm -hmm. uh, which again is reassuring. But um, at the same time, yeah, these are all bundled into the risk assessment, into this um, hazard assessment, part of the risk assessment. Um, so they are considered by um, these sorts of reports. Okay. And so they go through all of that process mm -hmm. and then they determine what ingredients can be used and at what sort of input level companies can use them. Is that the kind of outcome of the report? Yeah. So with the hazard assessment part, they um, generally look at animal studies and they find like what they call a no adverse effect um, no observed adverse effect level. Um, so this is like the amount that you can feed to an animal, usually it's like feeding animals, the amount that you can feed to an animal that doesn't cause um, much harm. Um, and then they take that number, they work out like how much you would need to apply on a human to get that amount. And then they multiply, they divide that by a hundred. Um, yeah. So that's how, what the, um, what Europe has decided. They want like less than 1% of that as the maximum limit. Um, so yeah, there's all these like massive safety buffers. Um, so the EU recently reduced the limit in oxybenzone in body products from 6% to 2.2%. And it was based on this sort of assessment. Um, so in other words, to get the amount that in an animal study was found to produce a like no harm, you would need to you would need to apply a sunscreen that contained 220% oxybenzone. Got you. So just to double click on that because I think mm. this is an important point. They assess what the safe level is. Mm -hmm. This is what I heard anyway. You can let me know if I heard it right. Um, they assess what the safe sort of tolerable, tolerable level is. Um, and you're saying these are from animal studies. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm assuming they're kind of um, using a sort of gram per kilogram basis or something similar. Mm -hmm. um, then they say, okay, well, that's the level that was deemed to be safe. But just to be extra safe, let's divide that by 100 and set the sort of um, the upper limit at 1% of that number for use in human products. Exactly. Okay. And is that something that then countries like Australia and other countries um, are, are also sort of abiding by in terms of um, brands formulating products and, and what the sort of local regulations are here? Is it the same as as what the EU are doing? In general, um, globally, 
you eventually get to around the same percentages. Um, so the EU, uh, the new EU limits are pretty new. Um, I think they got introduced into legislation maybe July this year. Um, so Australia tends to be a bit slow. So we'll probably follow them in a couple of years. Um, but I guess like they are just lowering it from 6% to 2.2% for body products. For face products, it is still 6%. So almost all the Australian products are still would still comply with the EU limits. Um, for body products, like we would only be getting less than three times as much, but there's that hundredfold buffer. So yeah, it is still relatively safe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, a little bit more from the practical side of, of things. Um, there's to my knowledge, there's sort of sunscreens and then there's also moisturizers now that I see contain SPF. Is there, if we're just looking at, at buying a product that's going to protect us from the sun, um, hopefully reduce our risk of cancer and help prevent some premature aging and damage to the skin, is there a difference between a sort of moisturizer with SPF and a more traditional sunscreen? Um, in Australia and in most places, there's no difference. Um, so it is pretty much a marketing decision w- which one you decide to put on. And in the Australian regulations, sunscreens and moisturizers with SPF are regulated the same way. So they go through the same testing. They've hit the same criteria before they get that label. Um, so from a cosmetic chemist perspective, um, To make a sunscreen or a moisturizer with SPF, the hardest thing to do is the SPF. Um, So if they tell you to make a moisturizer with SPF 50 um, versus an SPF 50 sunscreen, your whole process is the same. And then you just sprinkle moisturizers in the end for the moisturizer. Um, Chances are most sunscreens on the market now are also like they also have a moisturizing claim. Like they're like, this is a sunscreen that doesn't dry out your skin. So you would sprinkle that in anyway. So yeah, at the end of the day, they are probably like a lot of the time you probably end up with the same product with different names mm-hmm. um, and they just decide the name at the end. Right. And in terms of actually applying it, is there a difference between using a lotion and a sort of aerosol can? Um, aerosol cans are actually a special category um, and the TGA has actually been looking at them. It seems like aerosols don't work as well as like a lotion. So I would definitely go with the lotion. With aerosols, um, about a third of the can is going to be propellant. And a lot of the time they actually test the SPF before they put the propellant on. So like with the same size product, you are getting like one third less protection. Um there's also the fact that if you have an aerosol spray, if you have like a tiny bit of wind, it actually blows most of it off your skin and you end up with a lot less protection. Um, and this is like, this was actually the study that um, triggered the TGA to relook at aerosols. So I would definitely recommend a lotion, but obviously if you have really wriggly kids, then if you are going to use an aerosol spray, try to like douse them until their skin is like dripping wet. Mm-hmm. And so if we if we are using a lotion and you sort of mentioned before that the the studies that are kind of examining the effects of sunscreen, they apply it uh, probably a little bit um, differently to how the average person applies their sunscreen. Um, what are the kind of best practice sort of principles or tips to think about when we are applying sunscreen to our face or our body in terms of um, how much? we need to think about using and sort of how regularly we're reapplying? Um, So there's this really good graphic from the Cancer Council of Australia where they show you like you need one teaspoon for each 
particular body part. And I think that's probably the best way. Um, so from memory, it was like one teaspoon for face, face, head, neck, ears, um, one teaspoon for each arm, each leg, front of torso, back of torso. Um, if you don't have a teaspoon around, um, there's a study that found that like the beer bottle cap is actually a pretty good approximation of a teaspoon. Um, that should add up to one shot glass for your whole body. In terms of um, applying, obviously you want to apply it as evenly as possible. Make sure you cover all your areas. If you find that one teaspoon is difficult to apply in one go, they've actually found that it is beneficial to apply it in two goes because like your second time around, when you do the second layer, you're more likely to hit the places that you missed the first time. So you have like a second chance of getting um, some coverage on some bits. Um, with reapplication, you should reapply every two hours and if you go into the water. And the reason for this is because um, the sunscreen layer will shift around as you move around, bits will get wiped off, you'll sweat through it and like make a hole basically. And then, yeah, so after two hours, you've probably done enough stuff that you need to reapply. Um, there's a bit of a myth that it's like two hours of sun exposure. So like, I know your sunscreen starts like dwindling and um, dwindling as you, uh, as it absorbs UV and you've got like a UV quota or something. That isn't the case with newer sunscreens with, um, especially in Australia where we have these better UV filters, um, they're photostable. So they will stay active the whole time. They just like um, convert UV to harmless heat constantly without like running out. So yeah, it's more about how much you move and whether or not that layer gets disturbed. Gotcha. So if you are sweating, so let's mm. say you're not swimming, but you're playing tennis uh, and you're sweating quite uh, vigorously, would you need to reapply more than than every two hours? Or you're saying that 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 sort of caters for for excessive sweating as well and um in that instance, you would be reapplying at the two-hour mark? Um, that's a really good question. And that's actually something that's currently being discussed a lot within um, the sunscreen community, which is um, regulation of um, claims. So right now, the only claims on a sunscreen label that are properly regulated are SPF, broad spectrum, and water resistance. So in Australia, we have a lot of sunscreens that have four-hour water resistance. And the way they test that is they put the sunscreen on, they get the person to sit in basically like a jacuzzi for four hours, um, and then they test the SPF afterwards. And so if you have SPF 50 and after all that dipping, you still have SPF 50, then it gets a four-hour water resistance um, sticker. The problem is, um, obviously, if you're sitting in a jacuzzi, the water is coming from the outside. If you're sweating, it's coming from the inside of the sunscreen film. So it's probably going to have very different, um, like it, it won't be exactly the same. In general, they found that more water-resistant sunscreens tend to be more sweat-resistant, but at the moment, it's very difficult to tell whether or not it's been tested. Um, so if you see the words sweat resistant on a sunscreen and it's water resistant, that is probably your best bet for something that will work for tennis. Um, but yeah, until we have that regulation, it's all going to be a bit of a guess. Okay. You mentioned broad spectrum. We haven't kind of dug into that, but is that what what is that? And is that something that all of these sunscreen products, are they all broad spectrum? Is, is it something that we need to look out for? What does it actually mean? Um, in Australia, we're very lucky because the TGA has basically said if you have an SPF um, 30 or higher sunscreen or maybe 15 high or higher sunscreen, it has to be broad spectrum. So we don't even need to think about it. Just go for a high protection sunscreen and we're good. Um, if you're somewhere else, then it might be a bit different. SPF is based on um, 
the UV that reddens the skin. So this is the shorter wave UV, it's UVB and a little bit of UVA. Um, broad spectrum means that we have protection of the longer wavelength UVA as well. Um, the test is like a bit complex, but basically it just means you have um, better protection with the longer wavelengths as well, not just the sunburn causing UV. And these longer wavelengths are good to protect against because they tend to be more responsible for um, deeper wrinkling, um, longer lasting pigment, um, melanoma as well. Um, so yeah, it's good to always get broad spectrum if possible. If you're really prone to pigment, you might actually want to go further and have a look for a sunscreen that actually claims very high UVA um, resistance. If you have um, overseas sunscreens, sometimes they have a specific number for the UVA rating. In Australia, that's actually not allowed. Um, so you do have to like, yeah, go overseas or do some Googling. Um, if you are really prone to pigment as well, one other thing you might want to look for is a tinted sunscreen. They found that the tinting ingredients will actually protect against um, short wavelength visible light. So in that blue and purple region, which can also increase pigment. Is there is there any role for an SPF 15? Because going back to our earlier conversation, you said you may or you should look for the highest SPF, um, but there are a lot of sort of face, face moisturizers or... or Face skincare products that I see that have SPF 15. What are your kind of views on those products? Um, I think it's completely useless. Um, I think back in the day when SPF 30, SPF 50 products were like heavier and thicker, then there was an argument where um, if you apply a lot of an SPF 15 product, it might actually give you more protection than applying a tiny bit of an SPF 50 product. But these days, the formulas are so good that I don't think it's worth it. Also, um, I think it also gives people a false sense of security. So there's a lot of people who will apply a foundation that has SPF 15 or even SPF 50, and they think that gives them enough protection. But again, um, remember, it's about that thickness of the layer. If you apply less than the amount you should, you will get a lower SPF. And if you're applying even an SPF 50 um, foundation, you're applying a small amount, you are probably getting like SPF 2, even though a lot of people are thinking they're getting SPF 50. So honestly, I kind of think that they should just get rid of that and just not allow products to claim SPF unless they're a product that you can apply quite a lot of. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend wearing uh, a sort of uh, a high SPF um, sunscreen on your face and, and body anytime that you go outside or is it only on sunny days or what's your kind of protocol here? Um, so there was a, um, a consensus statement that was issued by, um, I think, Cancer Council, um, the College of Dermatologists, also like the Bone Health Society and the Endocrine Society, just like pretty much everyone who has like any sort of um, any sort of stake in UV um, in Australia. And they came out with the statement, which was if the UV index is over is three or higher, then you should wear um, SPF. If it's two or lower, then it's not necessary. And I think that's really sensible because um, low vitamin D is a problem. That is one thing the carnivore people have gotten correct. Um, vitamin D is important. Um, sun exposure for other reasons is also important. So there's studies that have shown that sun exposure is good for nitrogen oxide in the blood as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think um, I think in general, just avoiding everything is always risky because there's always new evidence coming out. Biology is complex. So um, yeah, I think this sort of moderation is really sensible. 
right? So some sort of safe sun exposure. Yeah. Um, if you are worried about like aging and pigment and wrinkles, um, I would also recommend just wearing sunscreen on your face every day and just like sacrifice a leg or an arm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and with regards to putting sunscreen uh, on our family or or having um, you know sunscreen available within the household, can the same sunscreen that that's being used for adults can that also be used for kids? Um, yes. Um, I think the only thing is um, there's a guideline. I can't remember what exactly it is, but I think it's like um, kids under one shouldn't use sunscreen. Um, So, yeah, there's lots of other things you can use apart from sunscreen as well. Um, So they always recommend like it's just the whole slip, slop, slap thing. Um, So as well as sunscreen, you can use hats, um, sunglasses, um, seek shade in the, in the middle of the day, wear long sleeve shirts. There are also, um, there's also a lot of clothing now that has a UPF rating, which is essentially equivalent to SPF in sunscreen, except it doesn't wear off. And um, it works in general, it's a lot more reliable to rely on clothing rather than sunscreen. Mm-hmm. Something else that I, I often see uh, online and usually within the nutrition world, and there's this kind of small section, um, small but vocal, that talk about seed oils, polyunsaturated fats, and they talk about um, omega-6s particularly. And um, there's this kind of idea out there that I believe is not really based on any uh, real evidence. There's a lot of anecdotes that these omega-6 oils cause sunburn and could be bad for the skin, or at least make you more susceptible to sunburn, I should say. So I'm wondering, have you have you looked at polyunsaturated fats, whether it's omega-3s and 6s, and, and whether or not there is any evidence that their consumption or their, t- or their use in a sort of topical um, sunscreen has a positive or negative effect with regards to preventing sun damage? Um, I've looked at it very briefly, but again, yeah, I've just come to the same conclusion that you said, like it's all anecdotal and there's not much of an evidence space. However, there is actually a study where, um, but this was on winter skin. Um, they were actually looking at how skin responded to different oils put on the skin. Um, and they actually found that topical omega-6 was good. Um, I believe it was sunflower oil or safflower oil that they used. And they actually found that the omega-6 um, integrates with the, um, it gets turned into ceramides within your skin. And these ceramides are actually really good for um, reducing flaking. So yeah, I have a lot of doubt that um, omega-6 would suddenly be good in winter and bad in summer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we can we can pop that study and some of these other things into the, the show notes for folks if they want to dig into them. Um, to kind of summarize on, on this whole sunscreen uh, conversation that we've had here. Is there anything that you feel like we haven't covered that often comes up um, or have we done a good job at, at kind of covering most of the the common questions that people have? Um, I think there was a, only one thing, which was um, you mentioned benzene before, and I think I just forgot to talk about it. Um, yeah. So benzene and sunscreens, this was actually not a sunscreen issue. It's actually with the other ingredients in the sunscreen, like the stuff that's in every other cosmetic product. So benzene hasn't just been found in sunscreen. It's also been found in hand sanitizer. And I think maybe yesterday there was also a um, news article where 
um, Health Canada, which is their regulation agency, um, they found benzene in a bunch of dry shampoo products. So yeah, benzene is not to do with sunscreen. It's just to do with the other components of um, cosmetic products. Right. But just to kind of recap on that, you're saying that the level that is used within sunscreens, although this could be toxic at a certain exposure level, what the amount that's being used in sunscreens, you're saying we are, as we understand it today, is a safe and tolerable amount for humans. Yeah, so benzene actually isn't purposely added to any cosmetic ingredient. Um, it's just a trace contaminant from some of the purification or production processes. Um, so the amounts that have been found in sunscreens and other products are usually like less than five parts per million, which is about half a drop in like a standard um, spray sunscreen, for example. Um, and this amount has not been linked to increase in like leukemia or blood cancers or any of that stuff. Um, and it's actually less than your benzene exposure that you would get if you just go into a city and just breathe the air for a day, because benzene is actually an additive in petrol. Um, and if you actually want to reduce your benzene exposure, one professor who pretty much just studies benzene toxicology, his recommendation is to actually park your car outside of a garage connected to your house. Um, so those petrol fumes, that is actually a much larger exposure for you than any sunscreen you could apply. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you walk into the store tomorrow, you need to top up your uh, SPF products, face and body. Summarize all of this for me. You, you're you're presented with a shelf full of different options. What are the things that you're quickly thinking about so that you can grab a product, be confident that it's going to protect you, it's safe, um, and um, you know that that makes that decision making process nice and easy for you. Okay, so. The most important thing is to pick a sunscreen that you can apply a lot of regularly. Um, so that means it's probably something that has a nice texture, something that fits your budget so you're not like trying to scrimp on it, um, something that you can get a large enough bottle of, um, something that your skin doesn't react to. So yeah, that is pretty much it. Um, in terms of specific recommendations. Um, if your skin is oily, you probably want to go for a chemical sunscreen. If your skin is dry, you, you actually also probably want to go for a chemical sunscreen. If it's sensitive, maybe you might want to look at zinc or look at some of the newer UV, um, newer chemical filters. So maybe just look for something that says sensitive. Um, in general, you want the highest SPF you can find. And in Australia, we're really lucky because our $2 sunscreens from Coles and Woolworths and Audi, those are actually really nice and light. Um, and yeah, they, they actually feel really nice. So if you're not sure where to start, I would probably start with that because if that sunscreen works for you, then you are getting a ridiculous bargain. Mm -hmm. And within the kind of big picture of just all kind of topical cosmetic products that we we might use, and I think you mentioned this at the beginning, does does the foundation really begin with good SPF products? Yes. Um, SPF is pretty much the best thing you can do for your skin. Um, beyond that, I would probably recommend the next step would be um, some sort of retinoid product, whether it's prescription retinoid or, um, or an over-the-counter one from a company that has 
a good reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also the case with sunscreen. Um, every year you'll see lots of lots of um, newspaper articles about how um, SPF has been retested and it's lower than expected. SPF is SPF testing is just really really dodgy, really. Um, It's really unreliable. You get really wildly different results from different labs. Um, At the end of the day, the best thing to do is just go with a company you trust. Mm -hmm. And all of the ones in Australia will be TGA listed products. Is that right? Um, Not necessarily. Um, Most of the time you would expect that, but I've seen some dodgy stuff going on online recently. So look for something with an OSTL number. Okay, that's a great tip. So OSTL with the number usually on the front of the pack, that's going to be uh, an indication that that product is actually TGA listed, which means they've they've um, had to sort of meet uh, a higher degree of kind of scrutiny or regulations to get that product onto market. Would that be right? Yeah. So if it's listed, then um, they have to have evidence of the SPF. It also has to be manufactured in a TGA approved facility. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, we could talk for hours and hours and I wanted to cover skincare in depth with you, but I think we saved that for a part two to touch on uh, niacinamide and hyaluronic acid and um, retinol, which you've spoken about quite a few times, collagen, vitamin C. There's so much for us to dive into specific skin issues like eczema um, and acne. I'd love to cover all of that, but I think we we saved that for a follow-up episode and in the meantime, um, no doubt the community will send through a bunch of questions that they've 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 got for that episode, um, and perhaps some questions from from this one on on sunscreen. Um, this has been super fascinating. I've learned a lot, Michelle. Um, thank you so much. I love the the work that you're doing, and and I know how much time it takes to 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 create the the content that you do and and go through all of the research and address myths that are out there. And I think you're doing such a, a fantastic job. So um, keep it up. And uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation in a part two, where hopefully we can focus, zoom in on skincare products. Um, if folks would like to connect with you and consume all of the the wonderful content that you're putting out there, where's the the best place for them to find you? I'm on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. I have a website and everything is under Lab Muffin Beauty Science. Okay. Well, I will make sure there's links to all of that and a bunch of the science that you've uh, spoken about in this episode in the show notes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. 
Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.